Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. In the late 1960s, a high school student named Nancy Andreasen had to turn down a prestigious scholarship to Harvard because her father didn't think a young woman should stray that far from home. Nonetheless, she went on to become a professor of Renaissance literature, publishing under the gender-neutral name NJC Andreasen. She was the first woman hired into a tenure-track position at the University of Iowa. And then, as she lay in bed for a week after a difficult labor and delivery, her mind wandering, she decided she wanted to do something that would change more people's lives. Off she went to medical school, becoming a neuropsychiatrist and a world expert in PET scans. Dr. Andreasen was especially enchanted by the peculiar patterns of electrical energy produced by the idling mind which she named REST, R-E-S-T, state. It stands for Random Episodic Silent Thinking. The acronym was a kind of a joke, she says, since when a person's brain seems to be at rest, it's just processing information differently. It is not at rest. At rest, she says, there isn't just a little bit of activity. There's a great deal of it. When we turn away from the barrage of sensory input produced by the outside world, our mind looks toward the inner self. We rummage around the knowledge and memories and feelings stored in the brain, combining concepts and noting noting connections we normally wouldn't. Precisely when we're in that state we call mindlessness, resting, daydreaming, walking, other quiet activities, The mind is most free to roam. That's when we're most likely to generate new ideas. In the summer of 1798, after five years' absence, William Wordsworth returned to the banks of the River Wye, gazed down at Tintern Abbey, and was inspired to write an ode to the restorative power of the idling mind. Of what he sees, he says, these beauteous forms through a long absence have not been to me as is a landscape to a blind man's eye. But oft in lonely rooms and mid the din of towns and cities I have owed to them in hours of weariness sensations sweet felt in the blood and felt along the heart and passing even into my purer mind with tranquil restoration. Feelings, too, of unremembered pleasures, such perhaps as have no slight or trivial influence on that best portion of a good man's life. His little, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and of love. 
nor less I trust to them may I have owed another gift of aspect more sublime, that blessed mood in which the burthen of the mystery in which the heavy and the weary world of all this intelligible world is lightened, that serene and blessed mood in which the affections gently lead us on, until the breath of this corporeal frame and even the motion of our human blood almost suspended, we are laid asleep in body and become a living soul, while with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. Wordsworth. The idling mind invites us to spaciousness, restores us to beauty, sweetness, kindness, love, peace, bliss, and leads us to innovation, creativity, and discovery. Hunter Davies wrote a book called The Beatles Lyrics, noting that some of John Lennon and Paul McCartney's most memorable lines were penned not in the studio when their minds were supposed to be focused on work, but on cocktail napkins, on the backs of envelopes, mid-flight on airline notepaper, and on hotel stationery. Physicist and author Leonard Mladenow tells the story of spending hours wading through a tedious, involved mathematical approach to a physics problem. He'd been at it for days. One Friday night, he finally took a break to go on a date. He really tried to stop thinking about physics and focus on the lovely woman seated across from him at an upscale Italian restaurant. But suddenly, just as his linguine was served, an elegant trick for solving his problems surfaced in his consciousness. He writes, I felt an irresistible urge to work out enough of the mathematical details to confirm that the idea made sense. How do you say to a woman that she's captivating, but could she just wait for five minutes while you scrawl some equations on your napkin? I'd wanted a romantic evening, but as she put her hand on mine, my mind was stuck on the geometry of an infinite dimensional space. I know super geeky, super nerdy. And we should pay attention. If we're lucky, the geeks and the nerds will inherit the earth. At 18 years old, Mary Goodwin spent the summer in Switzerland with a circle of friends. One night, sitting around a fire, reading from a book of ghost stories, they agreed that they'd each write one of their own. By the next evening, everyone else had written something, but Mary didn't have a clue where to start. She'd been reading about the experiments of Erasmus Darwin, who claimed that he had preserved a piece of vermicelli in a glass, that, glass case, and one night, the vermicelli began to move all on its own. Could life be created, she wondered, and by what force? Sometime around midnight, lying in bed, staring at the ceiling, the outline of Mary's ghost story took shape in her mind. My imagination, she says, unbidden, possessed and guided me. I saw with shut eyes, but acute mental vision, the pale student of unhallowed arts, kneeling beside the thing he had put together. Three years later, having married one of those friends and become 
Mary Shelley, she published Frankenstein. Leonardo da Vinci also knew the trick of unconscious processing. The clergyman who had commissioned him to paint the Last Supper was driven to distraction when the painter would spend half a day lost in thought. Somehow da Vinci persuaded him that the greatest geniuses sometimes accomplish more when they work less. British cosmologist Stephen Hawking diagnosed with ALS in 1963. His glasses were fitted with a motion sensor so he could click a mouse by twitching a muscle in his right cheek. Until his death, he communicated by choosing words from a computer screen. If you ever saw Dr. Hawking interviewed on television, the quickness with which he responded to questions was an illusion. He actually received the queries long in advance, composed sentences at a rate of only about six words a minute, and required days or weeks to fashion his answers. Leonard Mladenow wrote a beautiful piece about his work with Stephen Hawking. He writes, Typically, it would take several minutes for him to make even a simple response to something I said. At first, I would sit impatiently, daydreaming on and off as I waited. But then one day, I was looking over at his computer screen where the sentence he was constructing was visible. And I started thinking about his evolving reply. By the time he had completed it, I had had several minutes to ponder the ideas he expressed, and that led to a revelation. In normal conversations, we're expected to reply to each other within seconds. And as a result, our volleys of speech come almost automatically from a superficial place in our minds. In my conversations with Stephen, Leonard says the stretching of those seconds into minutes allowed me to more profoundly consider his thoughts. And it enabled my own ideas and my reactions to his to percolate as they never can in ordinary circumstances. The slowed pace endowed our exchanges with a depth of thought not possible in the rush of normal communication. If you are not someone who lets your mind idle, this is both your permission and an invitation. I'm not sure we can force ourselves to slow down like this, but we can make some gestures in that direction. I am sure, for example, that occasionally we could commit to setting aside our technology and letting our minds wander freely, creating the opportunity for some out-of-the-box insight. Watch really little kids at play. We could skip the part where they put everything into their mouths and pull each other's hair, but we would do well with more gazing in curiosity and wonder. Leonard Mladenow writes, the spirit of the child doesn't just disappear from our brains. It just becomes more difficult to conjure. The truth is that within all of us, there exists the neural networks of both a mischievous, imaginative child and a rational, self-censoring adult. We need both. But these days, we need a little more of that child. Fantasy and sci-fi writer Ursula Le Guin said, 
The creative adult is the child who has survived. Beloved spiritual companions, let us give ourselves to the restorative power of the idling mind. In spaciousness, may we be led to innovation, creativity, discovery, beauty, and bliss. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.